Well, good morning. Hey, we're in the middle of a series called Chronic, and we're talking about breaking dead-end lifestyles. And uh, we, are, we just finished uh, last week talking about the cycle of neediness, and we said that in each one of us is a, is a little bit of neediness, and we talked about how we could go about breaking that cycle. And this week we're talking about the cycle of vengeance. Um, and as a matter of fact, I don't know if you've ever given much thought to what it's like to get up and, uh, and, and give a talk on the weekend, but some weekends I'm very fortunate in that I get to talk about something that I haven't particularly struggled with that specific week, right? I appreciate it when it works out that way. Um, but, but sometimes uh, uh, it, falls, it falls my responsibility to get up and talk about something that's been a challenge for myself during the week, and uh, I've got to be honest with you, this, this is one of those weeks. And so I don't come to you as the teacher in the front of the classroom, but rather just another student who's wanting to share with you some of what God has been showing me uh, about this topic. And, and maybe to get you thinking a little bit about what it is that we're going to be talking about, let me ask you this question. Has, has anybody ever decided to come after you? I'm not saying they're unkind or they're, they're mean or, or hurtful. What I'm saying is they, of all the people in the face of the earth, they've singled you out and they have it out for you. And they're trying to make your life difficult, trying to find some way to, to make you miserable. Um, and, and, and all the time you're thinking, I have not done anything. I have not done anything to this person. Why are they doing this? Could be you have a, a paranoid boss, you know, and you, you're having success right now, and, and uh, the economy's tough, everybody's watching each other at work, and your boss is watching you and wondering how do you have the success that you have, and really kind of distressed that maybe you're moving up the ranks a little bit faster than they were, and they're starting to get upset, and maybe they're a little paranoid, or maybe, maybe it's a, a disgruntled employee, right? You're a supervisor, you've done everything you can to make this person happy, you've done everything you can to try to uh, have a good working relationship with this person, You've extended the olive branch. You're trying to be a nice person. And yet every time you turn around, they're doing something to make you miserable. Could be you have an ex-spouse who's doing this. All, they, all it seems like they want to do is find a way to just get at you somewhere or another. Find some way to just, just, just get you upset. And, and let's, let's see what happens. If I make them mad enough, let's see what happens, right? Could be it's somebody who's a manipulator, somebody who's in the business of trying to get you to do things you don't want to do. Or maybe there's somebody who, who um, enjoys making other people feel embarrassed or put down a peg, and so they're making fun of you in front of other people. And can I ask you, in, in all honesty, can I get a witness to the fact that when these sorts of things happen and we haven't done anything to deserve it, our sense of justice sort of kicks in, right? Kind of like, you know, this isn't fair. I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I having to put up with this? Why am I having to deal with this? This isn't fair. You know, I ought to be able to, to come up with a really good response. By the way, doesn't that ever bother you when somebody says something to you and you, don't, you just kind of stutter and don't have anything to say back and you walk away and about 10 minutes later, the perfect thing comes to your mind. I should have said that, right? <laughs> but you know, the thing about retaliation is we recognize if I go back after them, this is just going to end up being one big cycle. And they came after me. If I go back after them, they're going to come back after me, and I'm going to want to go back after them, and this thing's never going to stop. But the question, I think, is how do we not retaliate without becoming fake or passive-aggressive or internalizing everything? And it's a big question. And if you're there this morning and you're asking that question, I think you'd have a lot in common with the guy that we're talking about. His name is David. 
And he is he's one of the most incredible life stories that you'll ever read in the scriptures. And, and in order for you to understand what it is that we're going to be talking about this morning, I, I want to give you a little bit of a, of, of, a, of a summary view of what had happened in David's life. As a matter of fact, my dad's going to be back to close out the last two weeks of Chronic, and, uh, and the rest later on in this series, we'll come back to some of these stories and kind of take a different angle on it. But what I want to do is sort of give you an idea of what had happened in David's life. And what I want you to know is that David was sort of born at the bottom of the totem pole. I mean, he was in a big family of boys. You know, I mean, if, if, if you were in a family of girls and you were born at the end, you're still okay if you're a boy because it was a male-dominated society. So you'd still be the fair-haired child if you were the only guy in a family of girls. But he was in a family of a bunch of boys, and he was the last one. So, you know, his brothers got to do the glamorous jobs. They got to do the fun stuff. They got to, to, to do the, the high-profile family jobs. And, and David got to be the sheep babysitter because they had a lot of sheep, and David's job was just to keep an eye on the sheep and make sure nothing bad happens to him. But I want, what I want you to understand is he was happy doing that. He was happy watching the sheep, and he was very good at it. As a matter of fact, he did very well at, at fending off wild animals, and he apparently uh, found joy out there watching the sheep. So what I want you to understand is we're not talking here about a political aggressor or a guy with an agenda or somebody who's trying to come in and shake up government or, or, or throw over the, the existing regime. This is not the kind of guy that we're talking about, but you see, God did not intend to leave him babysitting the sheep. Shakespeare said, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And David had something that pegged him for the third option, and that was God's favor. I wonder if, if you thought about what it means to have God's favor in your life. When God gives someone favor, it's not because they deserve it. Now, God does tend to pick people to show his favor to who are in tune with what it is that he's trying to do, but there is, there's no mistake to be made about it. God does not give you favor because you've somehow deserved it because none of us are deserving of God's favor. It's special privilege, it's special position. It is an opportunity to do something more than that which you come prepackaged able to do. It's, it's taking life to another level. It's, it's what we're here about at New Spring. Everything is about, everything that God has given us here on this campus is a measure of God's favor. Everything that we've been able to do is a measure of God's favor. And God will, will, will pick you out, he will single you out for his favor and what'll happen is he will elevate you when you're not looking, which is what happened to David. See, David wasn't looking for a position. He wasn't looking for an opportunity to rise up the ranks, but God had picked him out, and he had God's favor. Psalm 78, 70 says this, Then he chose David, his servant, handpicked him from his work in the sheep pens. One day he was caring for the ewes and the lambs, and the next day God had him shepherding Jacob, his people Israel, his prized possession. See, God is in the business of putting people who get it in positions of power and influence. But if God shows favor to you, there's something you should be aware of. It has kind of a reliable side effect. And that is that it's very obvious and people start asking questions. How is it that this person is getting to rise up the ranks when I've paid my dues and they haven't? How is it that this person who's not as educated as I am has more influence than I do? How is it that this person has more blessings than I do when I've worked harder? How is it that this person, even though they're going through difficult times and they're having problems, how is it that God continues to bless them? It just doesn't seem right. I See, me, I, I've, I've paid all my dues. I've done everything right. I've, I've, I've gone the extra mile. And look at me. I'm not, I'm not ex excelling like they are. And eventually that favor begins to show. 
In David's life, there was a particular guy who had a front row seat to watch what God's favor looked like. His name was Saul. And what you should know is that Saul was in the business of losing God's favor. You see, at some point, God had elevated Saul. And yet Saul had chosen not to be on track with God's plan. Saul had chosen to take God's favor and run the opposite direction with it. And so Saul was in the process of losing God's favor. So this is that, that example of somebody who has God's favor running into somebody who's losing God's favor, and, and we see what happens in the interaction. And I want to give you kind of a bracketed view of what happened with these guys. I want to start in 1 Samuel, starting in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 18. One of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that... He's a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He's also a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, Send me your son David, the shepherd. So David went to Saul and began serving him. And Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor bearer. Then look at 1 Samuel 18, verse 5. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. See, I want you to understand, like so many relationships that eventually go sour, this relationship started off quite well, as a matter of fact. This, this was a good relationship. In fact, I would say it was complimentary because David is in, in King Saul's court and whether or not anybody realizes it at this point, David is learning, learning how to be king from Saul and Saul is getting the benefit of having, having David. David had good judgment. The people in his army liked him and on top of that, Saul, as I said, has this unfinished business with God, this tension between him and God and so he has this, this unrest on the inside and he would continue to have these, these fits of, of what we might today talk about. Um, uh, of, of he might have, we, we would say perhaps he had terrible uh, anxiety over the fact that there was this, this rift between him and God. And so David would come in and play the harp and it would calm Saul down. So this was a complimentary relationship. And in the beginning, things were okay. But at some point, something snaps. If you want my opinion... I think it was that David's favor started showing. You see, David met up with a big guy named Goliath, and the outcome wasn't what everybody had predicted. Can you imagine? Here you got this big guy who's been absolutely making God's armies and God's king look foolish for, for an extended period of time. And you've got this gangly teenager who walks in on the scene and says, you know, I just don't think we ought to be letting him say those things. I, th I think I'm going to go take him down. Right, and and everybody's sitting there going, look, we we've been you know huddling here in the in the in the fortress. We haven't even been able to get a military plan put together to how to take this guy out as a as a group. You know, I mean, our basic military strategy at this point is don't die, right? And and this guy's saying he's going to go out there and try to take this guy on. And can you imagine the embarrassment when this teenage kid goes out in the middle of the field and takes down this nine plus foot guy? And he's the person who has made it all happen. It wasn't Saul. But I think Saul is going to give it a buy. You know, I mean, it could be a fluke. Maybe it's a mistake. But you see, favor doesn't hide in the shadows. Look with me at 1 Samuel 18, starting verse 6. As they returned home after David had killed the Philistine, the women poured out of all the villages of Israel, singing and dancing, welcoming King Saul with tambourines. I think he much liked this, probably. Festive songs and lutes and playful frolic, the women sang, Saul kills by the thousand. And Saul said, sing that verse again. That's my favorite one. But then they said, David by the 10,000. Oops. 
This made Saul angry, very angry. And look at this. He took it. What is it? It is David's success, right? He, he took David's success and the way that this was all playing out. He took it as a personal insult. They credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands. Before you know it, they'll be giving him the kingdom. And from that moment on, Saul kept his eye on David. And I want you to recognize David's position hasn't changed. David's personality hasn't changed. David's mission in life hasn't changed. His ideas haven't changed. Who he is and who God is hasn't changed. Everything about his life hasn't changed. But Saul has changed towards him. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting in verse 10. The next day, an ugly mood was sent by God to afflict, afflict Saul, who, was, who became quite beside himself, raving. And David played his harp as he usually did at such times. And Saul had a spear in his hand. And suddenly... Saul threw the spear, thinking, I'll nail David to the wall. David ducked in the spear mist, and this happened twice. Now, if you're David, what are you thinking at this point? <laughs> if, if, if I'm David, I'm thinking, what have I done to this guy? I mean, I, what have I done but good for him anyhow? I mean, I came here, I left my family, I went, came to an unfamiliar place, uh, I'm living in, a, in an unfamiliar place, I didn't ask for that. I'm, I'm playing the harp for the guy, and he doesn't pay. He doesn't have. Any, he doesn't give me any good tips. You know, I I, I came in here and I I, I you know I, I I serve him. I you know I've I've killed you know giants. These nine foot tall guys. That wasn't part of my job description. And now the guy's trying to nail me to the wall. I really think perhaps um, if 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 it were me, I, I would be getting out at this point, right? And we talk about signals in relationships, you know, and dating especially. We talk about when somebody's sort of signaling you the relationship is moving in a good direction or they signal you, signaling you that the relationship is over. When somebody throws a spear at you, they're signaling you the relationship is over, right? <laughs> but as the adult in the room, David continues to graciously serve Saul. Why? Because favor isn't afraid to wait its turn. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, starting in verse 12. Now Saul, now Saul feared David. Can you imagine this? This is the king of all Israel. He's afraid of this young kid, the new kid on the block. It was clear that God was with David and had left Saul. Man, if there was ever a huge sentence in the Bible, this is so huge. It was clear that God was with David and had left Saul. So Saul got David out of his sight by making him an officer in the army. David was in combat frequently, and everything David did turned out well. Yes, God was with him, and as Saul saw David becoming more successful, he himself grew more fearful. He could see the handwriting on the wall, but everyone else in Israel and Judah loved David, and they loved watching him in action. I mean, if they'd had action figurines back there in that time, you know, the little kids would have had David action figurines, you know, little David bobbleheads. But did, did you notice that Saul, Saul is a manipulator? A lot of times when somebody comes after you, they'll try to manipulate you. And so Saul didn't really want to, you know, after he thought about it and, 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 you know, thought about this business of throwing spears at people, I think he pretty much figured, you know, I don't have to do this. I don't have to kill the guy. I put him in battle at the front lines enough. Eventually somebody's going to get a clean shot at him and this whole deal will be over and I won't have to deal with it anymore. Have you ever had somebody put you in a bad situation on purpose so they won't have to deal with you? That's what Saul was doing to David because he could spot the trends and he knew this wasn't going in a positive direction. Look at 1 Samuel 18, starting verse 28. As Saul more and more realized that God was with David and how much his own daughter Michael loved him, his fear of David increased and settled into hate. Saul 
hated David. Can you imagine? It started off so well. Things were going so good. And now he hates the guy. And then look at this, 1 Samuel 19. Saul called his son Jonathan together with the servants and ordered them to kill David. Enough of this. Enough of this business of throwing spears. My aim wasn't that good anyway. Enough of this business of sending him to the front lines. Obviously, that's not going to work. I'm just going to call all my people in and say, just go get the guy. Go get him and take him out. And David, oh, he has to run for his life. Think about what David's had to put up with by now. Ingratitude. Obviously, Saul's not you know, singing his praises for all the nice things that he's done for Saul. Unkindness. Inconsistency, because Saul was the most on-again, off-again person you've ever met. One minute he's saying, David, I love you, you're my best friend. The next minute he's sending people out to kill him. Suspicion, manipulation, attempted murder. But the interesting thing is that multiple times when David is in this running for, him, from, for his life stage, trying to get away from Saul, he stumbles onto Saul in a position where he could have taken Saul's life like that. And he probably would have been okay if he'd done it. Because Saul's guys didn't like him much more uh, than, than David at this point. I mean, there was, there was a rift between Saul and everybody. Saul was in the process of distancing himself from everybody. Do you know what that looks like when somebody is not only attacking you, but they're kind of in the process of, of making enemies of them and everybody else. And David could have taken his life like that, but David chose not to. His favor isn't out to win any trophies. Sometime later, the Philistines attack Israel and kill Saul and three of his sons, including Jonathan. Shortly thereafter, David becomes the king of Judah, and about seven years later, he becomes the king of all Israel. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. Thus David ruled over all Israel, and he ruled well, fair and even-handed in all his duties and relationships. Take that, Saul. Take that. Everybody likes me. Everybody thinks I'm nice. Here, you know, it's too bad Saul's not alive, so I can't, you know, rub his manipulative, passive-aggressive little nose in it. You know, he could come over and I could show him. I could introduce him to my heart player and ask him if I've thrown any spears at him lately. I could take him around and introduce him to the rest of my staff, and they could tell him how, how good a guy I am to work for. I mean, I could really show Saul a thing or two about being king if he was still around. He could see that people like me, and, and he'd understand that everything he did to me, he got what he deserved. He may be dead now, but he got what he deserved. Seems to me this would be the time to gloat. And in our lives, there will be that pivotal moment when the table turns, when everything shifts, and now we're not in the position of being attacked. In fact, we're, we're kind of elevated, and we have the opportunity to strike back. And we know really that the person that we could go after really doesn't have much defense. We could take him out. The problem is, David cared about Saul. And this is an element of God's favor that cannot be reduced, and that is that people with God's favor care about the people who attack them. So one of the first things David does when he becomes king, look at, look at with me at 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. One day David asked his is anyone still alive in Saul's family? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Kindness? Kindness? David, have you taken leave of your mind? You, okay, 
Here's the way the world works. We're an aggressive society, here's the way the world works. They throw a spear at you, you throw a spear back at them. They come after you, you come after them. They chase you into hiding, you chase them into hiding. See, there you go, that's, that's, you know, that's primitive war 101. Uh, you, know, you can pay your tuition credits as you walk on the way out. You know, it's, it's, it's really not that difficult. You don't show kindness to people who have almost ruined your life. And if there were no favor involved, that, that might have been the case. But see, favor isn't afraid to show kindness when it's elevated. And Saul does still have a living descendant. One last representative of everything and everyone who had tried to hurt David in his life. And I wonder if you recognize the moment that he's at at this moment. So many, so, so many of us, we know what it's like to be attacked. We know what it's like to want to retaliate. We know what it's like to have that moment where if you were to seize control, you could really hurt the other person. And I want you to know that in this time frame, it wasn't, when, 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 when there was a big political shakeup and you had one family where the kings came from and all of a sudden now you have a new family who's taking over the, the, the kingship of a country, it wasn't just likely you'd go in and wipe out everybody from the previous family. It was expected. You know? So David's servants would have expected him to say, is there anybody left of Saul's family so we can go take care of business? But he said, I want to show God's kindness. Now what does that word kindness mean? Well, in the Hebrew, it means favor. David was saying, is there anybody left in Saul's house that I can show God's favor to? Because see, when God puts favor in your life, you just can't contain it. It's like it just keeps growing and growing and growing, and at some point, even the people who have attacked you, that favor starts to spill over, and you say, is there anybody I can take and show the favor that God has placed in my life and show it to them? Because those of us who have experienced God's favor, know that it changed our life. Is there anybody I can show kindness to? Jonathan, how, how do I show favor to somebody who's attacked me? How do I show God's kindness to someone who's attacked me? I want to give you three quick things, and I've got to hurry because I'm already running out of time, but three quick things about what David did that he was able to show favor. The first is this. He moved first. He moved first. Look at 2 Samuel start, chapter 9, starting in verse 2. He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked? Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect, and David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. He could have said, Mephibosheth, why didn't, why didn't you come earlier? You know, I mean, obviously you know this whole thing had taken place, and I was the king now, and you know there's bad history. I mean, after all, your grandfather wasn't the easiest guy to be around. You know we had problems, so why didn't you come and talk to me about what we were dealing with so that I could, you know, we could work this thing out? No, he moved first. In fact, in, in one of the older translations, it says that David sent and had him fetched. That's what I call moving first. And because David moved first, and the, you, you should know, the fact that he did was huge because you see Mephibosheth had been dropped. 
Let me go back a few chapters if you'll allow me. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And when the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. When it becomes clear somebody's wrong and we haven't done anything to them, we want them to move first. After all, they're the ones who attacked me. They're the one who came at me. It's, it should be them who move first. It should be them. It should be that person who comes to me and apologizes first. I shouldn't have to be the person to go and talk to them first. They ought to come to me. That's the way it ought to work. But I wonder, do you know whether or not they've been dropped? Some of us know what that's like. You thought you, tr- you, thought you could trust somebody, but they abused you. They dropped you. and Now, now you're not able to move as swiftly as you once were. You, you thought this person was going to be the person you were married to for the rest of your life, but they cheated on you and they divorced you. They dropped you. You thought this job was going to be your career for the rest of your life, but you walked out with a pink slip and a box of belongings that used to fill your desk drawer, and, and you, you know what it's like to be dropped. Mephibosheth was right there with you, and David had him fetched. When David, when, when Mephibosheth was found, when David sent for him, the place Mephibosheth was living in was called Lodabar. Like so many Hebrew names, there's a significance here. Lodabar means the place of no communication. It's a place known for isolation. He was living in a place where there was no communication. Can you imagine what it must have been like from Mephibosheth, a guy who was born on the wrong side of the tracks, a guy who was born to the losing team, who'd been crippled, he'd been dropped, and now he was living in a place where there's no communication. But at some point, the king sends for him, and they come say, the king has asked us to fetch you. Isn't this what God has done for each of us? Didn't he move first? The Bible says he loved us first. He loved us first before we, before we did anything. We, he, he came and, and fetched us. We were living in a place of no communication. We had no connection with God because there was nothing we could do to connect ourselves with God. We were, unless we became perfect and there was no way we could, there was, this big, there was this big wall between us and God. But God sent his son to fetch us out of a place of no communication, even though we'd been dropped, even though we weren't perfect. And he brought us to where he was. The second thing is this. I will exercise my leverage to restore. This is what David was saying. David exercised his leverage to restore and not to retaliate. Look at 2 Samuel 9, verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I'll give you all. Now look at this. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. My hunch is Everything David said after that, nobody could hear because of the sound of everybody's jaw dropping to the floor. You realize Saul was king. He had a lot of property. And it all belonged to David now. And yet David is giving this teenager back all the property that belonged to Saul. Why did he do that? Well, I was, uh, I was in Walmart the other day. I like Walmart. And I was, um, I was going over to that massive hardware section that they have because I was going to pick out a cross-point screwdriver. And I saw this fellow there, and in one hand he had a crowbar, and in the other hand he had a can of paint. And he had that far-off, dazed look in his eye. You know like when you're at the grocery store and you see somebody and they look like they're lost? Well, that's what this guy looked like. 
And he must have noticed I was looking at him, and I think he probably figured out I was wondering what he was thinking. So he looked at me and he said, well, I'm just trying to decide whether to tear it down or fix it up. (laughs) Boy, that's where we are with a lot of our relationships, aren't we? Somebody attacks you and does something you didn't deserve, and you've got a choice to make. You're going to have to choose. Am I going to tear it down or am I going to fix it up? I got a choice. And when David had Mephibosheth brought there in front of him, regardless of what his intentions were, he may have intended to do good, but at that moment when all those memories came flooding back to him of what it was like to dodge spears and run for his life and try to do the right thing and get treated so badly, it could have been that at that moment he would think, there's no reason not to tear this relationship apart. And for some of us, We're gonna have to make a choice. Are we gonna become a demolition pro? Are we gonna become a restoration pro? You know, if you're doing a demo job at your house, a lot of times, really the only thing that's necessary for a demo job is some reckless energy, right? Take some reckless energy to it. How many of us have taken some reckless energy to our relationships? Restoration takes time. It takes care, it takes skill, it takes preciseness, it takes understanding, it takes research. Restoration's not easy, but there is something about something that has been beautifully restored. David knew that. So David showed up with his can of paint and he said, hey, I'm here to fix this. I'm here to fix this relationship up. Are you game? Some of us, we've got a choice to make tomorrow when we go to work. We have to communicate to someone whether we're going to tear it down or whether we're going to fix it up. That's what God did for us. You know, God could have chosen to tear this whole thing up and start over again. After all, he created this earth. It was totally possible he could have just said, you know what, big mistake, big mistake. Just going to start over from scratch. And yet, he sent his son to die for us. What was he doing? He was taking his leverage because he has all the leverage and he used it to restore and not to retaliate. I've got to hurry because I've got three minutes left. Here's the third thing. David invested in Mephibosheth's future. Look at this, 2 Samuel 9, verse 7, and you will eat with me here at the king's table. Can you imagine the difference in Mephibosheth's life He had been living in the place of no communication. As a cripple, he probably wasn't experiencing much kindness in his life. The society at the time was not very kind to people that they believed had physical defects. He was probably just trying to get by, and and now he's seated at the king's table, and later on in the Bible we see he was treated just like one of the king's sons. Have you ever had one of those discussions when someone ends the, ends the talk by saying, no hard feelings, but you know there are still some hard feelings. There's something about that statement that, that, that's lacking, isn't there? It's kind of like no hard feelings, but, but there's really no discussion when you have that, when, when that little phrase is used, there's nothing left there about the future, right? So it could be no hard feelings, but I'm never, I never want to see you again. No, no hard feelings, but please don't cross my path. David said, no hard feelings, and I want to do something for you. I want to provide for your future. How many of our relationships would be different if we said, I don't just, I don't just have, I, I, I don't have any hard feelings towards you, but beyond that, I want to do something for you. 
And that's what God has done for us. If you think about it, if you think about it, God had said that he forgave us. The Bible tells us that he forgives us of our sins. That's part of it. That's one part. But the other part is he said, I want to do something for you. I want to make a way open to God. I want you to be able to have a relationship with God. That is what Jesus did for us. I picked a, a passage that you might, uh, you might think is strange to cover in this idea of God providing for us a future, and it may take the tech team a minute to get there because I've skipped several. But I picked this passage for a reason. In Luke 23, starting in verse 39, this is when Jesus is on the cross. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. I think this guy's hedged his bets both ways, if you ask me. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? And we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now think about this. When Jesus is on the cross, what is he paying for? He's paying for your sins and my sins. And of all the people that were around that day when Jesus was being crucified, probably nobody represented sin as much as those two guys who were up on the crosses next to him. Because you didn't get crucified for misdemeanors. You got crucified for the most heinous of crimes. And yet, when Jesus has a confrontation with somebody who represents all the reasons that he's there on that cross with nails through his hands and nails through his feet, suffering all the pain and anguish that he suffered on that day, when he's talking to somebody who in him rests the, the, the sins that he is himself paying for, he doesn't talk to this guy about his past. He talks to him about his future. In essence, he's saying, I, I want to do something for you. I want to I make a way for you to have a relationship with God. You know, God only knows what you're going through when you walked in this door today. I sure don't, but could be that you say, you know, Jonathan, I'm, I'm like David. I've got somebody who's attacking me. They're coming after me. And I, I'm trying hard to understand how I should respond. Can I tell you? Be be content and happy in the grace that God has given you because I tell you what, you can show that grace to people all day long and you won't lose any of what you have. God's grace has that strange ability to multiply. You can show God's grace to other people, you won't lose any of it. You can afford to be gracious. You can afford to be kind because God, God has got all the grace in the world and as you give it away, he will replenish the supply. But it could be you'd say, Jonathan, I'm more like Mephibosheth. You know, you said, you talked about how it's like to be dropped and to be living in a place with no communication. As you talked about having a relationship with God, I, I have no communication with God. And I, I don't even know, does God accept broken people? Because, you know, if, if I were to talk to you about all the stuff I've done in my life, you'd, you'd probably think I'm too broken. God would probably think I'm too broken. Can I tell you what? God died for broken people because we're all broken. You say, well, well, Jonathan, what do I have to do? How good is good enough? Well, perfect is good enough, but the, beauty, the beautiful thing is that Jesus was perfect for us. He did all the heavy lifting, and he died for us. Would you, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? You say, Jonathan, well, what would I have to do to have a relationship with God? Well, the, the cool thing is the doing's already been done, and God has done it for us. But he's a gentleman, and he doesn't force anything on anybody, so he's just waiting to know, will you accept the gift? So I'm gonna say the words to a prayer in a minute, and it's a real simple prayer. My words aren't particularly important. The important thing is whether or not you mean this from your heart. You can say this silently in your head, and if you say this, then God will save you. Here's, here's that prayer. 
Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I've done wrong things. And I know I can't make myself good enough for heaven. I ask you into my life. I accept Jesus' payment for all the things I've done wrong. I want to have a relationship with God. And I believe in you, Jesus.